Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. Our mission is to rightly divide the Word of God to proclaim the true gospel, knowing that our hope lies in the power of that gospel to transform individuals, families, and local churches so that they might do the same in love, proclaim the truth in this present evil age. So as we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your Word is truth. God created the heavens and the earth, and they were both complete in every way. Um, That's important to understand because uh, we have worldviews that say it wasn't complete, that it took millions of years to complete. And we got folks who say, you know, um, that, that God used the process of evolution to create things. But that's not what God's Word says. God's Word says that they were all complete in every way. Uh, Then God created spiritual beings referred to as the divine council, uh, referred to also as the stars or sons of God. We covered all of that. Sharing his authority in the heavens and physical beings as well were created, sharing his authority on earth. Next, the physical beings resided on earth in Eden, a holy mountain garden where heaven and earth overlapped. And in this heaven and earth realm, God had communion with all of his creation. These are, this is the spiritual beings he created and the earthly beings he created. The spiritual beings, the divine council, resided in the heavens, and at least some were allowed to commune in the garden as well. Uh, they were referred to as the hosts of heaven organized according to their office in service to God. So they had certain levels of power, okay? And there were some that were created higher than others, and so they were more powerful than others, okay? Uh, The light bearer, the seraphim, the cherubim, and the angels, each all had their own purpose. The coexistence of spirit and flesh in Eden was to be spread Globally, I like to refer to this as the gospel of Eden. It was the very first uh, commission that God gave mankind. Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth and rule over it. Okay, On earth, mankind and every beast of the earth were given seeds, fruit, and vegetation for food. There were no predators and there were no prey. All right? That's, that's pretty vital to understand as well. Then came the first rebellion, a twin rebellion in which the light bearer, God's most magnificent and beautiful spirit being, left his rightful place and became the Satan known as the opposer. Okay? He's anti-everything. He's just, he opposes everything. He tempted the earthly beings to disobey God and he led them to their fall. One-third of the spiritual beings fell as well as the earthly beings who were made in God's image attempted to be like God, the Most High. In so doing, they sinned and were cast down to earth, still in the spiritual dimension, but with access limited to the first heaven. As far as I can tell in Scripture, they were only allowed in God's presence, like in the book of Job, when God allowed it. Okay, Uh, Beginning at this point, Man's flesh would struggle with the influence of these fallen spiritual rebels. Man would align with these uh, align with these dark forces in rebellion through various attempts to bring heaven and earth together again. 
each time without acknowledging God. In the second rebellion, fallen spiritual being, uh, fallen spiritual rebels joined with the fallen human rebels, resulting in the Nephilim, the bloodthirsty tyrant kings, the men of the name, uh, they're called in Genesis 6. And this led to the spread of sin and wickedness across the world, corrupting God's original plan or his original way upon the earth. I don't like to say plan because I believe that everything that happened was part of his plan, but his original, um, I guess, reality or existence of man and spiritual beings. God cleansed the earth of man's wickedness. Uh, I have no idea what din means. Uh, the worldwide devastation in the worldwide devastation of the global flood. Looks like I just uh, hit a little extra letter there. Noah was instructed once again to be fruitful and multiply. So he, it was like he was carrying on the original Edenic gospel, only he was doing it um, in a new reality after the flood. And things were completely different after the flood. But in this new world, animals would be fearful of man. And man would be instructed for the first time to eat meat for, as I said, for the first time. This is most likely when the beasts became predator and prey as well. So there was something that changed during the flood that caused a change in the animals themselves. And they rearranged their existence in order, as God instructed Adam, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Noah to do, you can eat animals now. Okay. Uh, when Kenna was little, she said, she wants to be a vegetarian uh, because she loved animals and she loved cows. And so she went about two days until we all were eating our first hamburgers. And she said, I, I guess I won't be a vegetarian. I love animals, but they just taste so good. She was pretty little at that time. Uh, the descendants of Noah began to spread out as God instructed, similarly to man's expulsion from Eden to the east. And Cain's exile was to the east. And after the flood, man departed eastward. It wasn't long before they found what's called the plain of Shinar. And once again, fallen humans and fallen spirit beings banded together in an effort to avoid dispersing as God had instructed them. In addition, they attempted to recreate heaven and earth as it was in Eden. A Babylonian tower, and this is ancient Hebrew, a Babylonian tower was called a ziggurat. And it was known to the ancient Israelites to be a cosmic mountain. That's what you see the shape of it. It's or the pyramids. It's a cosmic mountain, okay, uh, in which where in which the earthly could commune with the divine. So the whole purpose of those those towers were to communicate with these fallen spiritual rebels. Do you understand? So uh, we see in early civilizations tons and tons of hieroglyphics and things where they were interacting. And I do believe that probably early on, uh, back during this time, these spiritual beings probably manifested themselves in ways that we don't see them manifested today. And of course, we didn't see them manifested at all, really, for the remainder of the Old Testament until Jesus came and he just, he got their goat. Like he just, everywhere he went, those spirits were freaking out. They were possessing people, and he called them out of, of those people. So, um, united in one great city with only one language uh, and manipulated by the fallen spirit rebels, their potential would take them too far too soon. 
And to be sure, their wickedness would spread as well. And because of this, God scattered them into 70 different people groups from here on known as the nations. Okay? So if God had left them alone, it wouldn't have been much longer before they would have been basically where we are right now with technology and all of that. So what's happened today, as we will uncover in, in the, the remainder of the Mask of the Beast series, is that today we are right back in Babel because we have no language barriers. If you want to, to speak to someone else, we've translated the languages, pretty much all of them. Not There may be some out there that have yet to be translated, but we can communicate with one another. So the language barrier is gone. And the world is growing more and more like a great city, right? These metroplexes are growing and growing and growing. And even in the rural areas, we see they're kind of adopting the lifestyles a little slower, but they're adopting the lifestyles of what's happening in the city, okay? So God wanted to hold them back, and that's why at that time he scattered them. While Genesis, Genesis 11 tells the story of the human actors, Moses and uh, prophets later fill in the details regarding the fallen spiritual beings in Babylon or Babel. It was called at the time, but this is the same Babylon that we see all throughout scripture, all the way uh, into revelation. God separated these fallen Elohim according to the number of the nations. So they separated with the people groups and essentially those fallen spiritual beings became the gods of those nations. Okay, just like Satan, the Satan is referred to now as the God of this world because their attention was turned more to those fallen beings than they were to God. And we see, of course, uh, God wanted a nation of his own. He wanted a nation for his own portion, one that was going to be uh, his chosen people. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Okay, these beings were given rule over certain territories or nations or empires and in very short order, these new nations were manipulated and tempted by the rebel spirit beings. They would begin to craft and conceive new gods of stone and wood in the form of created creatures, notably calves and serpents, which is interesting to note. From this point on, the fallen Elohim are linked to the tempting of the nations. Okay, you go all the way to Revelation Satan's uh, bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. At the end of that, the Bible says that the Satan will be released upon the earth. And the reason is to tempt the nations. Okay, so this was their job back then. It's going to be their job uh, after they're released on the earth again at the end of the thousand year reign. Uh, there is coming a day in which all authorities and all kings of the earth will face judgment alongside the fallen hosts of heaven. And that is what we're seeing, head, everything heading toward this, this culmination, this new day. But before that, things get a little bit crazy, okay? Um, life isn't life as usual as, as we experience it, but we're going to begin seeing more and more of the supernatural. We're going to be seeing more and more of the manifestations of these uh, spiritual beings, okay? Um, <clears throat> this is one of the many prophecies regarding the future hope of restoration. And here's what you have to understand. Everything that had fallen, everything that was lost, would be restored as it was in the beginning. All right? 
So let's cover what was lost or, or distorted at the beginning, all right? Um, this is important to recognize. Um, so as I said before, we will know how it will be reversed in the end, how God will return the earth and all of these beings back to their original um, state as it was in Eden. So what was corrupted? Space and matter. Sin entered into creation, causing a chain reaction of events. Disharmony was introduced into harmonious creation, and what would follow would be the fall of all physical creation. Uh, fallen humans. So as, as uh, the Bible states, in some areas it, it combines the spirit and the soul and just calls it the soul. In other parts of the Bible, because these two are eternal, it separates the spirit and the soul and the body, okay? But God intended for this fallenness, spirit, soul, and body, uh, which are now subject to death and decay, he's saying that all three of those will be redeemed. Uh, and so that's where we get um, um, sanctification, which is the salvation of the soul. You get justification, which is the salvation of the spirit. And you get glorification, which is the salvation of the body. Okay, so um, things changed within the earth as well. It's creatures and the vegetation. As we saw earlier, the Bible says, Cursed is the ground because of you, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you. Side effects of the great flood and the chaos that followed. Earth no longer was watered by a great mist from the ground, as, as we're told uh, early on in Scripture in Genesis 2.6. But instead... With rain, as evidenced now by the rainbow, and of course all of these other disastrous effects that it had after the flood. Tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, droughts, wildfires, all of those things did not exist before the flood. But now this, this whole thing would be cyclical. So the flood introduced a whole new set of, of uh issues upon the earth and for mankind to deal with. And what's great about those things, not, not great, but if you were to say there's one thing good about these natural disasters, you could say it reminds mankind that you are not in control. You think you are, but one hurricane comes through and, and you're powerless to stop it, right? So it just reminds mankind that you are not as great as you think you are, but there is someone who is greater, uh, being greater. Uh, of course, we see predator and prey, um, uh, that, that introduced as well. And then we see the fallen spiritual beings as we've discussed over the last few weeks. So then if this is all heading toward restoration, and that's truly what in Acts, what they talked about, the word they used for restoration meant renovation or rejuvenation or a return to the way it used to be. So if that's where we're headed, what are the things we should see in prophecy? regarding what will be renewed when the earth is renewed again as it was in Eden. Well, let's look at these. Time, space, and matter. The whole of creation seen and unseen in the heavens and everything in the earth. The creation will be completely renewed. Creatures will be returned to their former state. There will be no predator or prey any longer. And all will be returned to its original Edenic state. The office, I like calling it the office of Adam, almost like the office of the presidency, because Adam stood in a position of power, but he was representing God. He was representing the authority of God. So the office of Adam held in Eden upon the earth would be restored 
but the restoration would come through the Messiah, the Son of Man, Christ himself ruling and reigning for 1,000 years in a new Eden. All right? A restored heaven and on earth called the kingdom of heaven. During the 1,000-year reign, a.k.a. the kingdom of heaven, all enemies will be put under his feet as he reigns in peace. And as I mentioned before, but at the end of that, because Eden was not impervious to evil, he has to release the Satan again to tempt all of these people that had been born during that thousand years in that kingdom period. Okay? So they will be tempted, and believe it or not, people will raise their fist in the face of Jesus, and they will rebel against him. All right? But before we can see the fullness of this restoration take place, we have to understand the people, the process, the plan, and the place that God has ordained to bring it about. And that's, that's uh, so such a, a blessing to, to study this and understand it. So I just gave you, in a nutshell, Genesis 1 through 11. Okay, we just covered Genesis 1 through 11, kind of some of the high points and the major things that you need to know. When the people were scattered and the fallen Elohim were scattered with the nations um, as, as well in chapter 11, in Genesis 12, something very, very significant happens. Abraham and his descendants enter center stage. So this was the moment God was saying all of these other nations, these Gentile nations... And that's what they're called throughout Scripture. They're following these, their, their flesh, and they're being manipulated by these uh, fallen spiritual beings, the fallen Elohim. And they're giving themselves over to their, their uh, manipulation. But God says, I want to have a nation for my own possession, my own allotment. Now, let me just say this. This is where countless Christians get off track in their theology. If you do not understand God's purpose for Israel and you then try to replace Israel with the body of Christ or you say God is done with Israel, then from this point on, you get it wrong right here, then you take a second track and you deviate from God's truth in his word. And all kinds of craziness comes out of this deviation right here. And I'm here to tell you that most people today in the church in America believe that the church has replaced or the body of Christ has replaced Israel and that God is done with Israel and that the church is supposed to bring the kingdom. And when the kingdom gets to the certain place, a perfect place where the body of Christ is is uh, in kind of the equivalent of the head, which is Christ then Christ will return. That's what people are teaching today, all right? Lots, in lots and lots of different ways, all right? But I want you to understand it's so important to understand this as a believer right here, right now, and that's why I've, I'm going to spend the rest of our time together laying this down so you understand that God is not finished with Israel, okay? And here's why they deviate, because they do not understand the nature of God's relationship with Israel, so first, two things we wa- I want to get straight with you guys. Israel is Israel. So you guys say that with me. Israel is Israel. Number two, the body of Christ is not Israel. Okay, so say that with me. The body of Christ is not Israel. 
Get those two things in your head. If you mix that up, then from here on, you're on a path of deviation and, and everything that follows can be out of whack, okay? So, through Abram's seed, the nation of Israel would be born in an everlasting covenant with the nation God promises to bring forth from him. And this is the nation of Israel. We see God's covenant beginning in Genesis uh, 12 in verse 1. And I'm going to read through this, and you guys can just follow along or, or look at it in your Bibles or on your phones. Now the Lord said to Abram, <clears throat> if, if somebody wouldn't mind, I think I need a, a glass of water. I got something. So if somebody just want, thanks Sue. Sue's grabbing it. Thank you so much. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country... Okay, the nations that, had, that were under the, the influence of those fallen beings, of a fallen being. He says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. You have to break away clean and get out of here. Get away from all the false idols and all the ridiculous mess that they've gotten bogged down in. All right. Uh, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Thank you, sir. Um, pardon me. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went out with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So he was 75 years old when God called him to separate from all of his people and all of the lifestyle that he had known in the era of the Chaldees, okay? Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions, which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham, or Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land in those days. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Important to note right here. In Genesis thirteen seventeen. God had Abraham physically go to the land and walk in the actual land that was promised to him and his descendants. Okay? So this was not a spiritual realization of Israel. Okay? This was actual soil on the actual earth. This was the real deal. God physically had Abram go and walk through the land that he had promised him. Okay? This was the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In the Gentile nations, during this period of time, if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to be right with God, you had to bless Israel or one of the families of, of these descendants of Abraham. Okay? Um... And then the Bible says eventually all the families of the earth would be blessed as well. All the peoples of the earth. And of course, we know even now that that was majorly fulfilled in Christ because we have salvation through Christ. But, but it goes beyond that even. Okay. All right. So in Genesis 15, 
5 through 18. And again, I'm just going to read through this again. Genesis 15, 5 through 18. And he, God, took Abram, uh, took him, Abram, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now to you and I, we'd be like, wait, I asked you how you could prove that this was actually going to happen and you want me to bring you a, a, a flock of animals? Like, I don't, you want to start a farm? But, but Abram knew exactly what God was referring to. God was referring to the ancient blood covenant. And Abram knew as soon as God said, go get a heifer, he knew what was about to take place. I'm about to cut a covenant with almighty God, okay? And uh, so it says, then he brought all of these to him and he cut them in two and he laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Uh, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. Now, what this is referring to is the presence of God, the same way that happened in the garden of Eden. In a way, it was judgment day. So, so, uh, Abram could, could feel the presence of God and it was I mean, full of awe. I didn't want to say awful, but he was full of awe and terror, the kind of, the kind of fear that you would have if you stood before God. You would melt like butter. Well, that, that's essentially what's going on here, okay? And it says, just like in the garden when Adam was put to sleep and, and Eve was taken out of Adam, a deep sleep fell over Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. 13, and God said to Abram, now this is really cool because this is like... like uh, probably at least a few hundred, maybe not four, maybe four or 500 years before Joseph and his brother, Joseph was sold into slavery and Israel went into Egypt. And God's giving him this prophecy. He's saying, uh, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Okay. But I will judge that nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So this was a trial, but there was purpose in the trial, and there was great blessing that came out of the trial as well. That's going to be a theme that we're going to see. Uh, see this would almost be like for Abraham, uh, you saying to your, your fiancé, uh, tomorrow's the wedding day. We're, we're going to do this covenant, this marriage covenant, and for the first four years I'm going to lock you in the closet. Like it's almost like the same kind of thing, but, but he warns Abram. He said, this is the beginning of the covenant, but you need to know right from the beginning, things are not going to look great starting off. Things are not going to feel like we're in covenant. Okay. Things are going to feel like everything's like you're losing control and everything's going awry, but I have a purpose in this trial. By the time you come out of Egypt, I'm going to judge the nation who held you and who abused you. But I'm also going to send you out of that country with great possessions and in great number. They're going to walk out of that as a nation solidified. Okay. 
Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Uh, Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed through these the pieces, these pieces. Okay. So let me explain a little bit of background on this blood covenant. You would cut these animals in two. You would sprinkle their blood all in the grass in a field. The two representatives of each family that were cutting a covenant would face one another and they would do a figure eight. They would walk opposite of one another and do the figure eight and then stand back in their place. And as they did, the blood would get on the hem of their robes. Okay. And this was a whole thing that they went through and we'll, we'll study this at some point. Okay. But, um, but basically at the end of this, what was called the walk of death, walking through these pieces, all spread apart, they would say to one another, may this be done to me if I break this covenant. May this, what's done to these animals, scattered out in pieces and blood everywhere, may this be done to me if I break this covenant with you. Do you understand the significance and how important it was? Okay, so we see Abram falls asleep and two representatives walk through the pieces and neither one of them are Abraham. A a smoking oven and a flaming torch. And it says uh, that, so essentially what's happening here is that God walked in the midst of the pieces as a representative for both sides of the covenant. So he walked in place for the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the, the son of man, okay? That's really important that Jesus was a man and he was also God. So Jesus fulfilled this blood covenant when he came both as God and as man. You understand? Okay, at least we're headed in the right direction. So this covenant, as I said before, God was making a declaration of himself. May this be done to me in the same manner as these animals if I do not fulfill my oath. So God made a covenant that he will keep, absolutely will keep, and the, and the um, consequence of him Breaking that covenant, he's saying, would be me ceasing to exist, that I would be destroyed if I broke this covenant. So the fact that God stood in for both God and man meant that despite Abraham's descendants' inability to keep the covenant, and that's the whole story of the Old Testament, was Israel's uh, just total lack of ability to to keep the covenant, okay? Um, God, in his faithfulness, would keep it. Look at Malachi 3.6. Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob. Jacob is who? What was his name changed to? Israel. That's right. So he's speaking to Israel. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Because why? Because they're, they held up their end of the deal? No, because God doesn't change and God is faithful. Because God walked through the pieces as a flaming torch and the oven, okay? So the nature of the sons of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, is to fail over and over and over and over again. But because he does not change, they are not consumed in his wrath. Now, we're going to go back to finish up the last verse of the, the previous passage, verse 18. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, incidentally, those particular boundaries have never been held by Israel, which means there's a day coming in which Israel will hold in its possession all of the land that God mentioned there. They've held at times during the reign of Solomon, a large portion of that, but never the entire landmass between the rivers, okay? And so God's promising to them that this is going to be a future fulfillment, which means Israel has to, has to possess that in the future, okay? That hasn't been done yet. Now look at Genesis 17, 6 through 8. Genesis 17, 6 through 8. I will make you exceedingly fruitful... And I will make the nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting. How long does everlasting last? Have you ever just thought about that? Yeah, it's pretty simple, right? It's kind of cut and dried. For an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So he's saying once again, repeating himself, just in case it's not clear, this is an everlasting promise, an everlasting covenant and I will be their God. So this everlasting covenant consists of three promised things to Abram. In the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, we see seed, land, and blessing. Okay? And then later in the Davidic covenant, God adds to that covenant uh, the promise of the king of the line of David and, and that the king of kings would rule from Jerusalem in Israel and that he would rule over the entire earth. All right? So what, let's just think about what was the gospel of Eden again. Let's just review that. It sounded like there was a velociraptor out there. Um, what was the gospel? I mean, y'all are in between me and it. I would go that way. So um, <laughs> what's the thing? You don't, have to, you don't have to outrun the velociraptor. You just have to outrun the person uh, behind you. Yeah, just... Someone else. All right. So the gospel of Eden. What was the gospel of Eden? It was be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, and rule over the earth. That was God's charge to Adam in the garden that I refer to as the gospel of Eden. So do what? Be fruitful and multiply. So multiply in number. Rule over everything, all creation. Where? The earth. The, the earth, the, the place that God had given them to dwell and rule over. And what was the result? They would replenish it and subdue it. Everyone would have everything that they need. Life in the garden and life had they gone forward from the garden uh, as they were commanded to do would have been sufficient to keep them alive in great blessing. Okay? And blessing to all. So let's compare that now to the gospel of the kingdom. Do what? He said to Abram, multiply in number in population. That's the seed. Through the Davidic covenant, it added to that the rule, ruling over the whole earth. Where? As I said, over the whole earth, enthroned in the land that I give you. So there's the land, okay? And what was the result? I will bless you 
and you will be a blessing to all nations. Do you understand? You see how they correlate with one another. It was as if the gospel of Eden was just changed a little bit. And through Israel, God was going to bring about the gospel of Eden. Only now through the kingdom, through the Davidic kingdom, which Christ himself would rule and reign. Now, when we see Jacob wrestle with God in Genesis 32, um, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. All right. Because what it said was because he wrestled with God and prevailed. Okay. Now that prevailed, the word prevailed is very, very kind in this context because uh, God could have destroyed him in that moment very, very easily. Right. All he did was touch his hip. And, and wounded him, okay? So God could have destroyed him, but he didn't. He wounded him, and then, which you could say is a trial, because the Bible, well, we find later on, when he comes into Egypt, he's still leaning on his staff. So this was a lifelong injury, okay? This was something he thought about uh, often because it, it plagued him the rest of his life, okay? But... You could say it was more in line with he wrestled with God, and though he was wounded, he survived. And not only did he survive, but he had great blessing on the other side of it. Okay? And that's really what happened. So he named him Israel, and that's what it means to wrestle with God and prevail, or to wrestle with God and survive, and to wrestle with God and be blessed. So Israel's name is actually prophetic in nature. Every time they say the word, they're reminded that they would strive with God. They would be wounded in various tribulations, but survive. They would wrestle with God and go through many fiery trials. And yet they would prevail, not because of their faithfulness to God, but because God is faithful to them. Okay. Now, um, switching gears a little bit here, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Didn't know if you guys knew that or not. Um, and it is called a prolegomenon, okay? And that's the one collegiate word I'm going to use today, prolegomenon. And it means to say beforehand. And in literature, it's a detailed discussion at the beginning of a book. So it kind of outlines the rest of the book. So Job itself, which many, many Christians won't touch with a 10-foot pole, because it doesn't align with their particular theology, okay? Job is a very, very important discussion, a divinely inspired introduction to the Bible discussing how humanity will, re- will wrestle with evil in the fiery trials of life. However, the hope of humanity is this. If we put our faith in God, we will go through fire, but we will not be consumed. And we can even come out on the other side of the fire with great blessing. All right. No, it's a little awkward. Now, numerous times throughout Scripture, Israel is described as a tree or a bush over and over and over again. And in the book of Job, uh, chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, there's a prophecy regarding Israel. And this would have to be one of the first prophecies ever written because Job is the oldest book. Okay? Job 14, 7 through 9. You're going to get where I'm going here in just a minute. Verse 7, For there is hope for a tree when it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground, 
and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water, it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. How many of you guys have cut down a tree before? Anybody? So what happens over the next couple seasons if you leave the stump there? sprouts back up, right? That's what this verse is talking about. Just because a tree is cut off and the tree is cast into the fire doesn't mean that there that all hope is lost for that tree. And that's what this, this prophecy is talking about. Okay, okay, the tree has hope because though it's wounded, though it's cut down, and as time passes, we see that it sprouts new shoots again. Now let's look at Exodus 3.2 very quickly. Exodus 3.2. So Moses came to Horeb, to the mountain of God, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. So we have the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Do you see how this is pointing back to Israel striving with God, yet not being consumed? That was the whole uh, point in that when he first called Moses to go let his people go, free his people from their slavery. Now, let's go to the New Testament real quick, and I want to point something out to you and show you once again where some people go wrong. And we're, we're uh, getting close to closing here, but Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, this is Jesus. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, Jesus was referencing the 70th week of Daniel, okay? He's referencing a prophecy here, which is the seven-year tribulation period. That's what he's referencing. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these dead stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Okay? And then it says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And people will say, See? See, uh, Jesus himself was saying it. The axe was laid at the, at the uh, root of the tree and Israel rejected God. So he's done with them. Israel crucified Jesus. They rejected Jesus. Uh, they rejected the Holy Spirit. They rejected God the Father. So God cut them off and now he's done with them. He judged them. All right. But have you read Romans 11 lately? And I, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to tell you later today for homework. Read Romans chapter 11, and you're going to see what I'm talking about here in the New Testament. Paul is explaining. God most certainly is not done with Israel. There is always a believing remnant. And the one thing that always sets apart just children from Abraham, just being a descendant of Abraham does not, does not mean that you're going to make it. It's you being a descendant of Abraham and putting your faith in God. That's the difference. Like putting your trust in the covenant that God made with his people. If you reject him, it's just like the Gentiles. You have to come to God through Christ. Okay? To them, same thing. Now, especially, you have to come through Christ. But there's coming a day in which all of this stuff will begin to culminate, as I said. There's always a believing remnant. And the Bible says Israel was cut off, that they even ceased to exist... 
because of their unbelief. A hundred years ago, this sermon right here, Israel would not even, even, even been in existence. So all the preachers for however many 2,000 years now since Israel was, was basically destroyed in 70 AD, when they preached this message, they're preaching it in complete and total faith, knowing that if God said he's going to bring Israel back, he's going to bring Israel back. And guess what happened? In 1948, God brought Israel back. They ceased to exist, and yet he brought them back out of non-existence. They were scattered all over the whole earth, and God was going to make sure of his promises, that everything he said was going to happen will happen, but it couldn't happen unless Israel was on the chessboard. So not that long ago, we saw one of the major signs of the end times come about. The super sign of the end times was Israel becoming a nation again. Now, they're still in unbelief right now. They're still partially hardened, as Paul talks about in Romans 11. They're still in that state. They're rejecting Christ still. But something's going to happen that will very quickly make them perk up and start thinking long and hard about maybe they were wrong. When all of a sudden the rapture takes place and the body of Christ is taken out of the earth and they start reading scripture and they see, wow, scripture taught that. Jesus said that was going to, or it was going to happen and it happened. It was a mystery. Don't you think that would make you perk up and start maybe reading your Bible again? And then we're going to see a revival take place in Israel that we've never seen before. Okay. Well, we won't because we won't be here, but the world will see that great revival. Okay. But Paul says in Romans 11, there was great purpose. I want you to understand this because this is huge. Paul says there's great purpose in Israel's stumbling. And that purpose is you, you and I. That purpose, the, the, the gospel of grace, that the gospel of grace would be preached to you and I, Gentiles, okay? If it hadn't been for Israel's stumbling, without their falling, grace would not have been offered to you and I. Do you understand? So praise God Israel stumbled and fell and rejected because that opened the gospel of grace up to us or else we would have been lost in our sin. And when this age comes to an end and the body of Christ, as I said, is taken away, God will resume his program for the promised kingdom of heaven through the nation of Israel. However, as I said before, also, it's going to begin much like it did in the beginning when God said, hey, I'm going to lock you guys in the closet for 400 years. It's going to start when it resumes again. It's going to start with a great trial. Only we call this trial the great tribulation. Okay, the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation that ensues as soon as that deal is struck between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel then they will enter into that time of tribulation. For there is hope for a tree when it's cut down, that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail because God does not fail. One last scripture I want to show you, just to put that last nail in the coffin of this idea that God is finished with Israel. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day in the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light at night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If, 
this fixed order departs from before me. So if the sun ceases to shine, if the moon just one night falls out of the sky, if all the stars fall out of the heavens, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Do you understand? Do you think God wants the body of Christ to know that his covenant with Israel still stands, that the descendants of Abraham have a promise that they are in covenant and that it's never, ever, ever, ever going away. Do you think that God made his point? And look, I just scratched the surface. There is scripture after scripture after scripture saying the same kinds of things, that I will be faithful even though you guys are a bunch of lousy cur dogs, okay? That's his promise. And we have the mirror of that in grace, that your sin, Christ paid for your sin, past, present, and future. And if we put our faith in him, in the son, then we are the recipients of the gospel of grace and our sins are completely forgiven. Everything we've ever done, everything we ever will do. And so therefore, because we walk in freedom of the consequence of sin, all right, and the power of sin in your life, you can walk in freedom and you don't have to fall into that sin nature any longer. Amen. So it's this, this uh, beautiful mirror image, Israel and God's plan with Israel and the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and the gospel of grace, which, which God's word says is a mystery. And once we're out of the way, God pushes play on the gospel of the kingdom again. The tribulation begins, the 70th week of Daniel, and then we see that last period of time, seven years on the clock, and then Christ is coming back to set up his earthly kingdom. Isn't that good stuff? Let's pray.